I am the reluctant book marketer, and every week, twice a week right now, I come to you with marketing mindset podcast episodes. This is the first podcast episode where the tone is decidedly pessimistic about what we are able to do as authors to market our book. And I wrestled with this. After I finished talking with my guest, Brad Listy, there were a couple days where I wondered if anything I was doing could really make an impact. But that was the great thing about recording this episode. It's not the same hurrah, get excited, feel like we're going to conquer the day kind of approach to marketing that I often do bring to you. And when it's all said and done, I love that cliche, I still believe that if we are willing to get outside of our comfort zone and market the heck out of our books, we can sell a million copies. So please enjoy this episode with Brad Listy. And no, he is one of my heroes. When you hear at the beginning of this episode the trembling in my voice and how nervous I am, it's because I finally got to speak to a guest that I had no business talking to. I was tremendously thrilled that he agreed to let me interview him. And I hope that you will in some ways prove him wrong about the power of guesting on podcasts. Go out and buy a copy of his book, (laughs) Be Brief, and tell them everything. I've read it. I love it. Shamelessly enjoy it. I will have a link in the show notes. And I do want to mention a couple of things. There is an early point in this podcast where I get really confused about the mountains in Colorado, so I want to set the record straight. The mountain I hiked up is called Mount Bierstadt, and when I got to the top, I saw across the Sawtooth Ridge to Mount Evans, which is the only 14er in Colorado you can drive over, but if you climb up Bierstadt, you could make a day hike and do two 14ers in one day. I think it's a great metaphor for writing a book. You've got to summit that first mountain and then getting to the summit and realizing the hike is twice as long to make the next summit and dangerous, really difficult. I turned back. Don't be someone who turns back on the marketing of your book. And finally, late in the episode, Brad mentions a book that he cannot remember the author of. The author is Rebecca Skloot, and I will do a little bit of research, and if I find something great and interesting about her marketing plan for The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, I will put that article in the show notes as well, so please check them out. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brad Listy. Hey, I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance. Because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing. If we take the time to write a book, which is considerable, you would think that we would have a friendlier relationship with the process of trying to tell people about it. 
And I say this while also thinking of conversations I've had through the years with so many writers, particularly those who are locked in the frustrating process of drafting a book or dealing with rejection and finding that there's some confusion in the author. And I speak for myself here too. I've been through this before about what the point is. If you're writing a book for publication, the point is to communicate with readers, to find readers. And that, that very act, writing for an audience, writing for a prospective audience, sort of entails that marketing would have to be a part of it or should be a part of it. Because if you're writing for readers, then you need to be able to accept the fact that you're going to have to do some work to let prospective readers know that your book exists. <laughs> uh, I just think that maybe writers in general are not wired for this kind of business-related activity, marketplace activity, um, sales activity, whatever you want to call it. You know, I think the principal concern of most writers is artistic in nature. And it's so consuming. I have sympathy for people who struggle with this because I myself, I think, struggle with it. It's exhausting to write a book. It takes so much of yourself to get to the top of the mountain in that respect and to then have to undertake principal responsibility oftentimes for the marketing of said book is a lot. And I just think maybe, I mean, I hate to use this term because it drives me crazy, but I, I think a lot of people just don't have the bandwidth for it. Um, that might be one explanation. So there's uh, a couple of mountain peaks in Colorado. I grew up there and uh, Bierstadt and why am I forgetting the other one? They're basically like twin mountain peaks. They're both 14ers. Uh, and you go up the first one, which is not Bierstadt and on the hike up, it's, you know, the elevation change is huge. It's one of the taller ones from base to top. And you can feel like your lungs being challenged a little bit and you're just going up, up, up. There's really no flat. And you think, okay, when I get to the top, it's going to be amazing. And then I'm going to just go down this little ridge and I'm going to be over on the top of Bierstadt and I'll knock out two 14ers really quick. And then you get to the top of that first one and you look across, it's called the Sawtooth Ridge. And it is this really stupid, long, dangerous looking Rocky forever to get to Bierstadt. Um, and I remember the first time I went up there, I did turn around. I was like, I don't have enough time to make this hike. I've got, <laughs> I've got a friend's dog with me. It could die. Um, and those were all, I think, excuses too, because it was daunting to get up there and realize it's too far. Um, I know that I have a lot of ambition. And so part of what I talk to people about is the idea of trying to sell a million copies of a book, but that is such a crazy big number when you break it down. Uh, and I'm curious about you, is that something you ever thought about? Or did you, do you think about numbers when you're done with the book? Do you think about that with be brief and tell them everything you like, I hope I sell a million copies. 
what is your vision now that it's out there? I think I think about numbers in a human sort of way, like just sort of wondering what's going to happen. But I think that my expectations for this book are really low. And for maybe any book that I would publish as a work of literary fiction, unless something caught on and I became some sort of name and it had some sort of precedent. But I got to be frank with you. Like I have developed a belief that there's only so much that one can do to move the needle when it comes to book sales. You know, I guess there is the business machinery and media machinery that can be set into motion that can occasionally catapult a book to extraordinary sales, but that's very rare. And I also think that there are instances where said machinery is set into motion on behalf of a book and it doesn't work. And I think that ultimately it comes down to word of mouth. That's sort of where I hang my hat when it comes to book marketing. I mean, I think you do have to do some things that are within your power to try to get the word out. I don't think it's completely useless to do podcast interviews or print interviews or uh, anything of that nature. But I think you just have to have a realistic expectation for what the reach is going to be and for how it's going to move people. There are just so many things competing for people's attention. There are so many asks in this universe, spend money here, spend money here, spend money here, you know, whatever it is coming at us, I feel it as a consumer, it is exhausting. And so for a book to cut through, it just requires some chatter, you know, and I think there's chatter in the media, which can be effective to a degree. Like I said, I think what I often notice about books that might cut through in that way is that they seem to be ubiquitous. Like they seem to be everywhere I turn online. Um, I'll notice that and I'll go, okay, this book's probably catching on or finding some kind of readership. But even then the readership might be 25,000 readers, <laughs> which for like a hardcover release is great. You know, it's, but it's nowhere near a million. It's not even close. Um, and then more importantly and more effectively, I would posit is the kind of chatter where it's just readers reading the book and then evangelizing for it by in, you know, telling their friends they have to read it or buying copies for friends or whatever it is you know, that people do. You know, I've been there where you just you read a book and it lights you up and you want people to know about it. That kind of advocacy is second to none. I, uh, I read Dennis Johnson's Train Dreams and probably my listeners are sick of me mentioning it, hoping they're buying copies of it even though he can't directly benefit anymore. Um, but that's that book for me, just like the first time I read it, I, I was pretty sure that I was that character. And every time I read it, I see myself inside characters. Uh, it's good to see a guy like him have reach because he's writing literary fiction and, um, yeah, I don't, in some ways you're like, he has no business being where he was. That was a weird year too. I'll probably have to cut all of this, but uh, in terms of the pale King, not winning the Pulitzer and train dreams going up against it. And neither of those is good enough for the Pulitzer. That was a personal affront to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love both those books. Um, yeah, I agree with you. A million is a huge number. And I think that that's why I have started to use it because 
you need something that almost like scares you into thinking again about what we're up against. Um, that would not be a huge number of ticket sales for a movie. Um, and I believe that it can be done. I do believe that there's a strange sacrifice. You mentioned in your recent interview, I think she's your literary agent, if I understood. I've not listened to the show before, but tell me about your father. Uh, and you talked about staying with her for for better or worse because she took a chance on you. And it reminded me of Andre DeBuse staying with Godin. I think that's how you pronounce it, knowing that it impacted his sales. And that's another part of this conversation that I think I really want to hear from you about is loyalty for you. Uh, and <laughs> like it did for Andre DeBuse, it could cost you at some point. If you don't have like the go-getter with all of the connections, the Susan Golem who can get you through every door, just knowing that if you're not willing to step on people to the way to the top, there's consequence and it might be a good consequence. Yeah. I'm just not, well, I'm just not that way. I wouldn't do that. And if that means that it costs me professionally, that I can accept that. Uh, when I signed, and I should also say that my agent, Aaron Hosier, has always fought the good fight uh, on my behalf, has never given up on a project of mine uh, without my consent. You know, like we've always been in conversation about it. There has been a time in the past where, or a couple of times in the past where I, had a project that we went out with, but it just, you know, it, the response wasn't what we wanted. And I was the one who said, I think it's time. And she agreed, but with be brief and with my other novel attention deficit disorder, she pushed and she got the job done and that's all I can ask. And I also will never forget that when I was a complete nobody and I had no agent, and I was, you know, trying my best to find one that she believed in me and she took me on. And I don't know. I think that deserves loyalty. Now, if for some reason she were completely negligent in her duties or something, you know, that's a different story, but it's a hard business. And I think I'm sympathetic to the difficulties incurred by agents. That's not an easy job. And I know for a fact, based on my experience with Aaron, that rejections are felt powerfully by them too. You know, they care and they want to see their author succeed. You know, the, their author's success is their success, you know, in a very real way. But I think it goes deeper than that for the good ones. And, you know, I think that maybe there are some authors out there who have a more ruthless bearing when it comes to the business side of writing and they're willing to do whatever it takes and you know they'll ditch their old agent if they can find a more powerful agent or something like that but that sounds exhausting to me and it doesn't seem morally right to me it seems like what's it seems more like what's wrong with the world than what's right with the world <laughs> and uh, i just don't have the stomach for it or any desire to be like that Thank you for listening to The Reluctant Book Marketer. Did you know I have a Patreon? Well, now you do. And for as little as $1 a month, you can support the show. Every contribution goes directly to production. Not $1 stays in my pocket. So you can rest easy knowing you didn't contribute to my vacation fund to take the family to Hawaii this Christmas. 
Check the show notes for a link to become a patron today. Hooray! When I realized that we could collaborate our way to the top together, I think that switched on something for me. You seem to have known it from the beginning of uh, other people and the nervous breakdown, that collaboration was the best part of what we're doing. So I was curious to hear you talk a little bit about that. I think that part of it was born of being online at the advent of social media, seeing how it worked, having some degree of success in building a community and wondering what would happen if writers joined forces and sort of started their own thing. I was far from the only person who had that thought, but I was one of them. And I started this like collective blog or whatever you want to call it, which was the nervous breakdown. And I think if I'm being honest, there was some sort of, it's like survivor's guilt almost. My novel had found a home. I had just gotten out of graduate school not too long before. I knew a lot of writers who were struggling to find agents or find publishers. And I felt like I had, you know, I had been pulled onto a, a boat essentially. <laughs> so I was going to try to pull others on uh, to that boat. Uh, that was my instinct. And I think too, you know, I'm a person of privilege, uh, like a, a white male. Um, I didn't have student loan debt. You know, I come from like a fortunate situation in that regard. I knew a lot of people who did or who were in a worse financial situation. And there was just a sense that it was the, it was, it was what I should be doing. Like if you have success, then you should try to share that success or create some sort of situation to help your community, you know, and in, in my case, that would be writers. Um, and I think the same is true of other people, you know, it's just like wanting to help and be of service to my community, not only to help the community, but because I also know that that's just, it's important to me as like a value can't just be a person whose entire like raison d'etre is to build my thing. Um, and that's not to denigrate people who are super monomaniacal in their focus, like, or just like laser focus. I know there are those writers out there and they're probably having wild success. <laughs> uh, but for me, it's about happiness. Maybe like, I think I made, I made happy being of service and just feel like it, it's part of what I should be doing. Some of it is born of a tendency to want to experiment with new technologies and like new cultural circumstances. You know, I've had that itch, you know, both with the blogosphere, I guess you would call it. And then with podcasting, like maybe earlier than most not the earliest. There are others that beat me to the punch, but you know, it's kind of like in the earlier waves of both situations. And then also feeling a deep level of frustration with the business realities of publishing, having been through it as a debut author, and also feeling a deep level of frustration on behalf of other writers whose work. I have 
you know, I will have so much reverence for, but then, you know, I'll look out and see that the book isn't really finding very many readers at all. And that drives me crazy. And so I think in the absence of the wider culture, really embracing literature and celebrating it in a, in a more central kind of way, it just felt to me like the onus was and is on us as writers and book lovers to make it ourselves. I didn't want to wait around for the cavalry to come. You know, I just figured like, let's do something. And I think you did the same. And fortunately, I think a lot of people have since done, and especially with the rise of podcasting and the low barrier to entry, you know, to have like in-depth conversations about and around books and book culture, it's become a lot easier. And there are all sorts of different shows to serve all sorts of different literary sub-communities. And to me, that's wonderful. You know, look at your show as an example, a book, you know, a show that focuses on the rare art of book marketing, you know, <laughs> like it's, uh, it's, this is what we need to be doing in my view. Like if, if not us, then who? Seeing books that I love not find a home and knowing, unfortunately, that one of the best ways for a book to have bigger reach is for the person who is the writer to also be the marketer. For the vast majority of us, we have a book and we have different ways that we can hope to sell things. And I'm just passionate about seeing more people find the kind of success that they dream about. Uh, because I can't think of too many other careers where you know um, that you're doing what you're passionate about and you can't make a living doing it. And I get angry at some of the people I've known in my life who uh, get hot about someone wanting to sell a lot of copies of their novel. That's a strange thing to me that you were so passionate about writing a book. Um, and yet it's wrong of you to want to get it in people's hands. Um, question, I guess, for you right now is to me, be brief and tell them everything is a book that really should get a lot of reach because I think many fathers can relate to it. I think many young men searching for things can relate to it. Um, you have a bunch of niches within it. And the way that I described it to people that I recommended it to was it's kind of like all the best parts of my struggle by Knausgar boiled down into uh, 8% of the length, but maybe not even 8%. And so I think that you did a tremendous job with it. I imagine you want people to get a hold of it. And I imagine that's part of doing the tour. And there's also publicists to be thought of, but talk to me a little bit about, I guess, your pie in the sky hopes for it, if that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think my pie in the sky hopes for it. It was that it would sell millions of copies, right? That's pie in the sky. Sure. Um, I think that the, the hope for a book like this, which is on a smaller press, like a, a mid-size indie, I don't know what you call it, but you know, not like random house. Yeah. Uh, but even if it were most likely a book like this would probably be out there finding its readers, its first wave of readers, which has been in excess of my expectations. And again, I had very low expectations. So, you know, for the book to find its first, you know, few thousand readers, it seems wild to me. Uh, but that's the way it starts. No matter what, there are those first few thousand readers for any book. And as I always say, you know, what is the response going to be from those people? 
And in terms of pie in the sky for me, it would be that enough of them are moved by it and find value in it and in the experience of reading it that they would become evangelists for it. I don't think there's any way for a book to have like a robust long life in the absence of that. There's just, it's sort of like, you know, when you talk about comedians, I want to say it's like Jerry Seinfeld or some guy like that. I'm thinking of an interview that he did where he's like, you know, when I'm out working, you know how comedians work their material out. Yeah. Start on, smaller clubs. Yeah. Like they'll, yeah. They'll go to small clubs and they'll bomb. Like this is something you don't know about like the life of a working comedian, unless you kind of read up or see one of these documentaries about the behind the scenes work, but they go out to these small clubs and like Chris Rock will get up there for an hour and just suck. <laughs> while he, while he's like trying to figure out his new material. And I think the question posed was, well, you know, you're a big name comedian. Like, won't they just laugh at you because you sort of earned it or, you know, you've got this name recognition. And the response was like, maybe for like the first minute or two, you'll get like the benefit of the doubt. But after that, it's gotta be funny. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise they're going to boo you and throw things at you <laughs> and tell you, you suck. You know, it's a, it's a really stark environment in that sense. You know, you sink or swim up there and there's no faking it. You can't, you know, fake laughter isn't happening just so people can feel polite. You know, they're there to be made to authentically laugh and, you know, you either, you either cause that to happen or you don't. I think the same thing might be said for books that might have name recognition behind them. Maybe it's an author who has experienced past success and has written a book that was a big bestseller and now they've got a new one coming out. And so people buy it in that first wave. Or you have a book that's really buzzy because there was a big spend on the acquisition that made a splash. And so, you know, the machinery is set in motion to try to recoup that investment and book media you know, they love those kinds of books. They love it when like $3 million was spent at a bidding war for a novel by an unknown or whatever. Then the book has to go out, find those first few thousand readers, uh, or maybe it's, you know, 20,000 readers instead. But if those people read the book and are not genuinely moved by it, if they aren't to, you know, use the comedy comparison made to authentically laugh or authentically feel it's not going anywhere. I think that it'll peter out, you know? And so that's maybe a long-winded way of saying that if my pie in the sky is for millions of copies of the book to eventually sell, you know, at this stage of the process, about six weeks out from publication or two months out from publication, the hope is that there are people reading and responding and pressing the book into the hands of their friends. And it's just a slow burn. (laughs) Yeah. Which does happen, by the way. I mean, you see, there are stories of books that coming out of the gates, like, what was it? I want to say, what was it? I don't know if it was, I don't think it was Slaughterhouse-Five. Maybe it was Sirens of Titan, something like that. But it sold only like 500 copies in its first year. Hmm. One of these Vonnegut books. Yeah. Um, I want to say like, you know, the great Gatsby in the last year of Fitzgerald's life sold less than a hundred copies. I mean, he died thinking that book was a failure. So you, you only know so much about what's going on with a book in its life out in the world. You know, you're really not privy 
to almost all of it. You know, occasionally you hear from a reader, but so much of it is a mystery. And so you just hope that it's, it's doing well out there and it's finding the people that it's meant to find. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a similarity in, in podcasting as well, uh, that largely you can't actually know how much people are connecting. You'll get the random, uh, word of encouragement from somebody on Twitter or wherever it might be like, Oh, I like what you're doing. Um, and then you can go quite a while without hearing anything. Um, and I don't know about you, but I don't even read Amazon reviews. I'm told that they're very important. I give them out of a sense of duty. Now, any book I read, I review on Goodreads and Amazon. And so should you, if you're listening, but I honestly never read them. I, I just, they, they're of no value to me because, um, I'm going to make up my own mind in different ways. I don't have anything smart to say about that, but uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting quagmire then if we count on word of mouth and writing the best book that you possibly can is supposed to do something, then the best stuff should always float to the top. And if it doesn't, there's got to be some sort of toggle that you can flip to at least put a little bit more weight behind your process. You would think the best stuff floats to the top. I've had that thought and maybe even that belief at times, but I'm not so sure. I think that there are so many books that I consider to be excellent that don't float. <laughs> and uh, maybe it's just because there's too many. There's so many books and so many, and so many good ones that not all of them can capture the attention that they deserve. Um, I think that there's some sort of, it's like some sort of mystical thing that happens when a book really catches a wave and if anybody really knew how to define it and game it out they would be very wealthy uh, i think so much of it is beyond the writer's control it's beyond the marketing team's control it's beyond the publicist's control sometimes a book is really good and it just meets its moment at precisely the right time and the culture is in the mood for it the right people get their hands on it speak about it, advocate for it. And then it just kind of takes on a life of its own. And I've spoken over the years with authors for whom this has happened. There have not been a lot of them. It's a not, it's not a common experience, <laughs> uh, but there have been some, and I've had conversations around it and none of them really know. And I think it can be a little bit destabilizing almost. It's like mm -hmm. a shock. It's like, it's a shock no matter who you are almost. I think maybe you, you can get to a certain echelon but usually that's like popular fiction, you know, yep. those guys come to just sort of expect sales in the seven figures and up or whatever. But, um, for people in the literary world, like literary side of the, of the ledger, it's like, what, you know, <laughs> I, I think these people are just like pleasantly shocked and maybe a little terrified. Yeah. You know, I, I should have uh, caught more Colson Whitehead interviews, but as soon as you were talking about that, I was thinking of him as being one of those people that, um, I guess he's always had a little bit of buzz, but then he won the Pulitzer and then the second Pulitzer. And you're like, wow, wow, it's really happening for him. He's going to be like one of the biggest authors out there. Uh, his work is good. His work is probably an example of good floats to the top a little bit and some really big swings, uh, when he hasn't quite hit it out of the park, but close, uh, I don't know. I mean, this is a marketing show. And so I'm going to do everything I can to turn it around. And Brad Listy is going to tell all the listeners, it's easy to sell a million copies if you're willing to sell your soul. Um, but I'm actually getting the sense from you that even selling your soul is probably not going to get the job done, that there is a sense in which you have to show up and do your best work 
and that you have to do your best work to market your book because your publisher's not going to do it for you. In most cases, I should say, your publisher will not do it for you. And yes, it's like, it's a really, it's a, it's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do, but I think in both instances, creatively, and also when it comes to the more businessy aspects, like marketing your book after publication or upon publication, the basic rule remains the same or the basic ideal, which is to do your best work and to give your best effort, but to be divorced in your thoughts and emotions from the results. You have to be, when you're writing a book, focused on the task at hand and not thinking about selling a million copies or worrying about what your mom's going to think or whatever it is that, you know, can stump, can trip us up when we're trying to create. And then, you know, when you're going out and you're on tour and you're trying to gin up press coverage, you're having conversations like this, you, you do the best you can. You put your best foot forward. You work as hard as you can. And then if a million copies don't sell, you don't get suicidal or <laughs> defeated or, you know, distraught for months on end. And I guess that's easier said than done. I think it's pretty easy for me at this point, but it's hard. It's the product of, of like hard won like lessons. You know, I really went through maybe a longer period than most uh, as a young author who thought that he could impose his will on things. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Hey, maybe you can impose your will. And I just wasn't smart enough at it or good enough at it, you know, to be effective enough at it. Like maybe there are brilliant marketers who also happen to be brilliant authors who are blessed with both gifts who are able to impose their will on it. But I can't think of one. I think maybe the closest I can come is, um, oh God, the Henry, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, I think was the book. I know the book. I don't, can't remember the author, which makes me I feel know. poorly. I, I'm, it's not, yeah, please accept my apologies, author. <laughs> it's just my poor memory, but I do remember the book and I remember reading an excellent essay or some such by this author about how meticulous she was in her approach, like to putting together like a marketing plan for that book. And I, I came away being like, wow, maybe she's the one who like cracked the code, you know, and really did the work. It's a lot yeah. of work. You know, it's a lot yeah. of work just in terms of like nuts and bolts, you know, like writing essays and putting up a website and sending out, you know, query letters and all the different little kind of administrative tasks that go into marketing but then it's also like a big strategic lift, you know, that's the part of it. You're just like, oh my God, the thought that goes into it. And how do I get in touch with this person in a way that's effective? And how do I leverage the contacts that I have? And, you know, I just don't think most authors have what it takes in that department or they're just out of energy, which is defensible yeah. in my view, you know? Yeah. I, 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 the, the, the phrase you just used is one that I like um, because it's, a horrible phrase in and of itself, leverage contacts. Um, and I am guilty of thinking in that way uh, along this journey of like the people I've met and how might that open up a door for me to talk to somebody else that otherwise I might not be able to have a conversation with. Um, 
I guess naturally, I always have been a little bit more on the sales side. I grew up in sales jobs, and um, it's something that when I'm passionate about a product, I like to sell it. I enjoy that. Um, but I feel so disgusting when I think about leveraging contacts. It's that phrase and that like everything that it's come to mean to me. Also, why is it that it's harder for you to sell your own book than it is to sell your friend's books? And I don't mean in actual copies, but every uh, time you release an episode, you are shamelessly passionate about your guest's book. But then if you turn around the, the tables, there's the sense of like, maybe I won't ask this person to buy my book. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's natural to some degree. You know, we don't want to boast. Like who likes the person who's constantly trying to hawk their wares everywhere they go, you know? <clears throat> but I think that at least in the realm of uh, literary culture and literary people, there's an acknowledgement that when somebody has a book just coming out, that there's going to be a period of time during which a person <laughs> is going to be like insufferably self-promoting. Yeah. Because we, you know, anybody who's been through it in particular understands that so much of the responsibility or the burden falls on the author. So I think most authors would love nothing more than to have an official spokesperson out there advocating and handling all that. <laughs> handling all the outreach and whatnot, but that's just not the case. And so we have to go to bat for our books. And, you know, I think that maybe some of it sometimes can come down to like a low self-esteem thing. You know, there's a, there's a point at which humility should stop. <laughs> And you should advocate for your book. If you believe in it enough to want to publish it, kind of going back to what we were talking to or talking about earlier, if you're writing to publish, you're writing to find readers and you shouldn't be coy about that or you shouldn't delude yourself into thinking otherwise somehow. And you got to kind of own it. So go announce the book to readers once the book is in print and making its way out into the world and do yeah. it sincerely. And, you know, don't do it forever. But you don't have to self-denigrate or talk your book down. I know I've been pretty shameless in talking to my own podcast audience about my book. I imagine mm -hmm. there are some people who are sick of hearing me do it. But I don't know. I mean, what, what the heck else am I supposed to do? You know, that's my audience and that's my little megaphone. And I like to believe that most people tolerate it just because they sort of understand the situation. And then hopefully, you know, there are those who tolerate it because they understand that I've been working to advocate for other people's books for a long time. And, you know, I'm just going through a phase where I have one of my own and I'm just trying to get the word out. Yeah. Listen, I mean, from, from where I'm coming from, your book has power to bring light into the world. And so hearing you talk about your book, I just get excited. I don't know. I can't speak for other listeners, but I feel that way that hearing you talk about something that, that brought light into your life. And frankly, that has brought a lot of light into my life. And I saw myself in, and it's the strange thing that a, a great book does is it, uh, shows you yourself and you almost like get lost feeling like this is actually my story. I don't know how someone stole my story and wrote it, um, even though it's clearly not my story, but it feels that way. I think that's a really powerful thing that a great book does. Um, so keep talking about it. 
I have taken as much of your time as I asked for. So I want to uh, give you an opportunity to one more time, hawk your wares on my show, let everybody know where they can find you. I'll have all of the information in the show notes. Well, I think the easiest place to find out more about me and uh, my novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, would be at bradlisty.com. If you want to listen to my podcast, uh, which is called Other People with Brad Listy, in which I interview at length uh, contemporary authors and have been doing since 2011. So there's almost 800 episodes now. And uh, the website for the show is otherppl.com. And then it's also just available wherever podcasts are available. But those two places would probably be where to go. And then you can follow me. I'm not on social media as a person, but the Other People podcast is on social media. So that substitutes as my presence. And um, you can follow the podcast or Other PPL is how it's spelled on Instagram or on Twitter. Perfect. I will have links to everything in the show notes. Thank you for giving me your time today, Brad. It was a great conversation. Oh, such such a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a big favor right now. Click on the follow button in whatever podcast app you're listening on. That way you'll get notifications every time I drop a new episode. And if you still can't get enough, you can go to the show notes Click the link for my newsletter and sign up today. I'll give you one to two interesting pieces of content every single month that you won't hear on the podcast or find laying around on the internet.